Wela Utanchizaga kwai Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelensinzi, Tabiso Lohoko and Tami Kluza. In our top stories, South Sudan rebels accuse government of violence violating ceasefire. UN investigators denied entry into Sudan's Darfur region. In economics, US considers partnering with China on improving electricity in Africa. And in sports news, Morocco demands one-year delay of Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Onelen Zinzi. Botswana News Editors Forum says the country's democracy will be at stake should uh, President Ian Khama lose an appeal to change the rules of parliament. The forum says Khama may call for a rerun of the election. Parliament failed to sit in the past two weeks after the general election as a result of protracted court battles over how the Speaker and the Deputy Speaker of the House and the Vice President should be elected. Now that the court has ruled against Khama, the forum says the worst might be the dissolution of Parliament by Khama, calling for fresh elections. Itumeleng Khajani has more. The High Court in Botswana ruled last week against the applicants. The second justice, Michael Liburu, said at that time that voting through a secret ballot will make it easy for parliamentarians to vote without fear of intimidation and coercion. The ruling Botswana Democratic Party has appealed the ruling of the High Court. Boko Haram has seized control of a Nigerian town near the Niger border, leading soldiers to flee and adding to its expanding reach in the region. The insurgents have taken control of Malam Fattori in Nigeria's northeastern Bonn state. Nigerian officials say the fighting has killed dozens of people in a commercial hub known for fishing and farming. Town officials say 350 Nigerian soldiers have fled over border to defar. Burkina Faso's military leader Isaac Zida has dismissed a demand by the African Union that the country return to civilian rule within two weeks, saying he's not afraid of sanctions. Zida is currently holding talks with the opposition and other groups, which has not excluded a role for the military during the transition. The AU threatened Burkina Faso with sanctions unless power was handed to a civilian within two weeks. The presidents of Senegal, Nigeria and Ghana brokered an agreement last week that a civilian would lead a one-year transition in the run-up to elections in November next year. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa will today depart for Lusaka for the state funeral of the late Zambian President Michael Sata tomorrow. He will represent President Jacob Zuma government and the people of South Africa. The 77-year-old president died in a London hospital after a long illness. Ramaphosa spokesperson Roni Mamwepa. President Sata belongs to that generation of leaders produced by Zambia during the colonial times and gallantly pursued the anti-colonial struggle. His death reminds the people of South Africa of the immeasurable sacrifice and the sterling leadership role that Zambia played in ridding the African continent of the yoke of colonial domination and apartheid rule. President Sata supported robust economic transformation of the country, which led to positive economic growth and increased investment in Zambia. 
And finally, the leader of Bahamas Faith Ministry, Dr. Miles Monroe, and his wife, Ruth, have been killed in a plane crash in Grand Bahama. Monroe was a world-renowned motivational speaker and had written dozens of books. The small plane crashed on approach to the island of Grand Bahama, killing all nine people on board. Government officials in Bahamas say the Lear 36 executive jet had taken off from the capital, Nassau, and crashed while attempting to land around in Freeport. The course of the crash has not yet been determined, though there had been heavy rains across the region. Police and fire authorities are on the scene and a full investigation will begin today. Grand Bahama is about 113 kilometers east of Florida. Channel Africa News. The agreement came after two days of... Rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is exactly 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Monday, November the 10th, the 314th day of 2014 with 51 days left in the year. Our top story, less than 24 hours after the warring factions in South Sudan agreed to stop the fighting in the country, rebels have accused the government of violating the agreement. The rebel spokesperson is quoted by the media accusing the government forces of attacking rebel positions in the North Unity State. There has been no response from the government. On Friday, President Salva Kiir and his former deputy, Reik Machar, committed to end the fighting with immediate effect without any conditions during East African regional group IGAD's brokered peace talks. Sarah Kimani reports. The agreement came after two days of intense negotiations in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. South Sudan's neighbors warned that the region would impose sanctions on President Kiel and Dr. Machar if fighting continued. Dr. Seyum Mesfin is IGAD's chief mediator. Any violation of the cessation of hostilities by any party will invite the following collective action by the IGAD region against those responsible for such violations, which will include, but are not limited to, the enactment of asset freezes, the enactment of travel bans within the region, denial of the supply of arms and ammunition, and any other material that could be used in war. Mesfin said the two leaders committed to immediately stopping the recruitment of fighters, failure to which... The Egad region shall, without further reference to the warring parties, take the necessary measures to directly intervene in South Sudan to protect life and restore peace and stability. South Sudan erupted into fighting in December last year after a political fallout between President Kiel and his sacked deputy, Dr. Machar. More than 10,000 people have died and at least a million others have been displaced. President Kiel says he is confident that an agreement will be reached within the set deadline. It is naturally an order that you know we have to abide by. The people who are dying in South Sudan are our people and we the leaders of South Sudan should take the lead in stopping any any killings in our country. I therefore call upon all the forces in, in South Sudan and especially the SPLM no the SPLA forces that is the National Army of South Sudan and all other regular forces to remain in their barracks as from this hour not to be found outside their barracks. Should they be attacked from any direction, they should fight only in self-defense. This is what I want to tell my people and I want to commit, recommit myself again in front of the eager leaders that whatever we are saying here, is something that we are going to implement. 
without anything. The United Nations Security Council has warned that it will consider sanctions against the two leaders if the fighting does not stop. Dr. Riek Machal is the leader of the opposition. Uh, even if we have some issues to pursue in the next 15 days, consultation with our constituencies, I'm confident that we, we will reach a final agreement. I order all the SPL and SPLA forces to cease the hostilities and remain in their locations and only act in self-defense, but I believe there should be nothing of this kind. We do not want any soldier or any civilian to die again after this progress in Addis Ababa. The sticking point is the issue of how to share power in the planned transitional government. That must now be ironed out within the next 15 days. It is clear that patience is fast running out among the world's youngest nation's neighbors. Mesfin again. Should it be necessary to implement these measures, the IGAD region calls on the Peace and Security Council of the African Union, the Security Council of the United Nations, and the entire international community to render all possible assistance in the implementation of these measures. The two sides have continuously violated an agreement signed in January this year. Their time, however, take two. This time, however, it is clear that there will be no turning back for the two political rivals and indeed the region. Sarah Kimani. Reports from East Africa say a UN team of investigators has been prevented by the authorities in Sudan from entering Darfur, where it was expected to probe alleged rape of more than 200 women and girls. So far, the authorities in Khartoum have not explained why they prevented the UN team from entering Darfur. James Shimangula reports. The United Nations spokesman Stefane Dujaric has confirmed that the UN African Union mission team of investigators has been turned back at a checkpoint as it tried to enter a small village of Tabit in northern Darfur to investigate rape and defilement of more than 200 women and girls. Now Dujaric wants Khartoum to grant the UNAU mission team an official permission to enter Darfur. The African Union Joint UN Mission in Darfur is calling on the government of Sudan to grant uh, the mission unhindered access to all of Darfur, especially to areas where alleged incidents affecting civilians have been reported in accordance with the Status of Forces Agreement. Before the rape and the defilement of the women and the girls occurred, the United Nations Special Representative on Sexual Violence, Zainabu Hawa Bangura of Sierra Leone, visited Sudan, where she heard horrifying stories from rape victims in internally displaced camps in Darfur and elsewhere. Here is her recent recollection from stories narrated by victims during rape and defilement orgies. The pain they felt was tangible and their stories were heartbreaking. I saw rape victims as young as six months old and had stories of elderly victims in their 80s. When you meet the survivors and hear their stories, you know that one rape in war is far too many. They are committed by militia, they are committed by national armies, by the police. The pain that a woman feels who has been raped is the same. To get the Khartoum government reaction on the rape and the defilement allegations in Darfur, I telephoned one of President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir's spokesman, Rabbi Abdelati. He made it clear that soldiers of the country's armed forces were not responsible for the rape and the defilement committed in northern Darfur. I suspect that there is any rape. These allegations are false, completely. Rape. Over time, made by the rebels, not by the Sudan. 
Mandal Armed Forces. The rebels are disturbing peace, doing acts against security and against stability in that fort. However, Abdelati affirmed that the Khartoum government has launched an investigation into the allegations of rapes in the fort. It's the responsibility of the government to carry investigation and to bring those who committed such crimes to court and to punish them according to the law. And the government should implement the law which will secure the people and protect civilians and create an atmosphere of peace in this area. Northern Darfur is in the western part of Sudan, which has been on the international news since war broke out six years ago. In 2003, rebels in Darfur took up arms against government forces, and the UN says that as a result of the fighting, perhaps 300,000 people have died, and as many as 2.5 million have fled their homes to camps for internally displaced persons. IDPs. IDP camps across Darfur have been militarized with former combatants, vigilants, and other paramilitary groups mixing with the civilian population. With the proliferation of arms, there has been a rise in violence. Crimes which the local police are not able to handle because they are neither trusted nor accepted in many camps. According to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, rape and sexual violence remains systematic and widespread in Darfur, with the children and women in and around refugee and IDP camps especially vulnerable. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Botswana News Editors Forum says the country's democracy will be at stake should President Ian Kama lose an appeal to change the rules of parliament. The forum says Kama may call for a rerun of the election. Parliament failed to sit in the past two weeks after the general elections as a result of protracted court battles over how the Speaker and the Deputy Speaker of the House and Vice President should be elected. Now that the court has ruled against President Serete Kama Ian Kama, the forum says the worst might be the dissolution of Parliament by Kama calling for fresh elections. Itumeleng Khajane reports. The court case by the ruling Botswana Democratic Party led by President Serezekama Ian Kama and Attorney General Dr. Atalia Mulukume want the standing orders of the House to be changed and allow for the vote on these positions to be done through the show of hands instead of a secret ballot. The latter practice has been in use since 1999 when Kama himself was elected to the position of Vice President. The High Court in Botswana ruled last week against the applicants. The second justice, Michael Liburu, said at that time that voting through a secret ballot will make it easy for parliamentarians to vote without fear of intimidation and coercion. The ruling Botswana Democratic Party has appealed the ruling of the High Court. Its legal representative, Parks Tafa. The judgment is wrong. The spending order is unconstitutional. You can't bypass the constitution and override it in the manner that they've been done. Because when there's a constitutional violation, that has to be given supremacy. And uh, otherwise, you know, this is where countries start falling apart. As it takes so long for the 11th parliament to convene, what do Botswana have to say? Spencer Mukhapi is the chairperson of Botswana Editors Forum. Our fear here is that how will he respond? How will he take it if he loses? He has one option that God forbid he may resort to, which is to dissolve parliament and then call on fresh elections. His predecessor, Festus Mohai, once indicated that if he did not get his way, he would do the same. Political analyst at the University of Botswana, Zibani Maundeni, says Kama has to ensure that people of Botswana do not lose confidence in him. He says the president will have to work with people elected to fill the contested positions. Actually, the, the, the big issue is not the vice president for now. The big issue is the speaker. He, he doesn't like the current speaker. 
he wanted to replace the speaker with a different person that he can control, so that he can have control over over parliament. So I think I think he is aware of the risks involved, and I think he has softened down on the on the vice president issue. International law expert Professor Shadrach Guto has warned that Kama risks being considered an autocratic leader should he keep on sidelining those who do not agree with him. He says there will be lack of accountability due to failure by parliament to convene a sitting. And in order to have a properly functioning democracy, you must have the executive in place, the executive is in place, but um, the judiciary, of course, is non-elected and is in place, but you need the parliament to be functioning. Those three arms of, uh, of the state or of government are critical pillars of uh, democracy. It appears this year's elections have become a game-changer for the political landscape in Botswana. The opposition parties now have 20 seats out of the 57 parliamentary seats. The matter is now expected to be heard by the Supreme Court of Appeals this week. And that report by Itumileng Khajani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA, has vowed to fight its expulsion from Kosatu to the bitter end. The Trade Union Federation expelled its biggest affiliate after its Central Executive Committee meeting in Johannesburg at the weekend. It cited, among others, NUMSA's refusal to support the ruling ANC at the May general elections in line with Kosatu resolutions and organizing members beyond its scope. NUMSA says the expulsion is a plan hatched by the ANC and the SACP and COSATU President Stumo Tlamini. Ndebo Mukobo has more. A war of words between NUMSA leaders and their counterparts at COSATU looks set to continue despite the Metal Workers Union being expelled from the trade union movement. NUMSA remains defiant and has vowed to mobilize members to push for it to be reinstated. Its General Secretary Ivan Jim says the war is not over. We're going to convene a NUMSA constitutional meetings and mass meetings to develop a program of how we move forward and how we continue to raise our voices on working class struggle. The fight is not over. The NUMSA leadership call on all NUMSA members across the length and breadth of the country to remain united. We further call on all workers across all affiliates of COSADU to reject illegal expulsion of NUMSA by a fractional group of leaders led by COSADU president. His deputy, Carl Klute, has accused Kosato's national office bearers of having no respect for the Trade Union Federation's constitution. He says Kosato presidents to Matlamin and other CEC members will destroy the federation to protect the interests of the ANC and the SACP at all costs. We think that there is just no respect for Kosato's constitution. It is lawlessness that governs Kosato. Its own president should have been booted out a long time ago before NUMSA because he has no ability to unite the affiliates in that federation. Whenever he opens his mouth, whether it is in his opening address, whether it is in his intervention, he is so obsessed with NUMSA that there's nothing else he's able to utter that concerns the workers in this particular country. And the ANC and SACP leaders came under fire from NUMSA's General Secretary Ivan Jim. He says their expulsion was well orchestrated by COSATU President Stumotlamini, ANC Secretary General Gwede Mantashe, and NUM General Secretary Franz Baleni. Earlier, the ANC said NUMSA's expulsion was tragic and that workers will be left vulnerable. But Jim says this is laughable coming from the ANC. He also labeled Franz Baleni a hypocrite for saying NUM will gladly welcome NUMSA in COSATO if it apologizes. This is a well-coordinated and orchestrated program. Some people, like the ANC, in reacting to the expulsion of NUMSA, it's almost like people who are crying in a wrong funeral. Suddenly, the issue of dismissal of NUMSA is a tragedy. Workers are at a loss and they will be vulnerable now that they are outside the Federation. Gwede Mantasha suddenly 
He likes metal workers, but he's got a project to dismiss them. France Baloney is a hypocrite, to say the least. He has been one person who has been a ringleader of this project in the Federation. We reject his fooling of the public with contempt it deserves. But France Baloney dismissed Numsa's claims as unfortunate for a union that blatantly flouted Cosato rules and has urged its leadership to stop factionalism and rather focus on uniting workers. He says Numsa is a victim of its own circumstances. This is unfortunate because the development in NUMSA it is a self-inflicted injury by the current NUMSA leadership, where they, uh, in a predetermined manner, decided to violate the constitution and policies of the Federation. We had hoped that they would show remorse, but instead they were extremely arrogant to a point where a decision has to be taken that they must be expelled. We had still hoped that sanity would prevail so that they can apologize and we'll welcome them back. We don't want to respond to factionalist approach. These are tendencies of individualizing decisions of a collective because of factionalism, and we don't want to be that. Meanwhile, eight unions who've supported NUMSA during its battle with its mother body have called a media briefing in Johannesburg this morning to decide on their next course of action. Late in the afternoon, the ANC will also host a media briefing to address the latest developments within COSATO, as well as the criticism from NUMSA leadership. Kosato is also expected to respond later in the week. I am Debumokobo in Johannesburg. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy, and you can catch me on at Zonke Music on Twitter and Zonke Tigana on Facebook. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Ebola crisis in West Africa continues to claim lives despite the international effort led by the United Nations to contain the outbreak. Almost 5,000 people have died, although the figure could be higher due to unreported cases. In Liberia, the virus is not only stretching health facilities to the limit, it's also severely affected the economy. Grace Barrett reports on efforts by the UN Development Programme to help Liberians get healthy and get back to work. Liberia, a country in West Africa and home to more than 4 million people, is experiencing the worst Ebola virus outbreak in history. So far, more than 2,000 Liberians have lost their lives to Ebola, and the virus continues to travel rapidly throughout the country. Dr. Soka Moses works around the clock treating the sick. The most important aspect is to move sick people as fast as possible from the communities. To do that, you need a very strong referral network. You need a lot of ambulances, if possible, each one ambulance per district. When Ebola first hit Liberia, Julius Prout, a clinician, was inspired to open his own facility the St. Paul's Bridge Community Clinic in the capital city, Monrovia. With a small staff of six, he treated patients in need of urgent care. But it didn't take long before the disease took a toll on Julius, putting a strain on his family's finances. When I came down with the virus, my family, the aspect of their financial support began sloop. Things were difficult. For days he fought the lethal symptoms, his life hanging by a thread. Ebola has affected all areas of Liberian society, says Antonio Vigilante, resident representative of the United Nations Development Program, UNDP. Prices are increasing and particularly food prices are increasing so it becomes more difficult for households to meet their needs. Determined to stop the virus from claiming more victims and severely crippling Liberia's economy, UNDP is working with several UN agencies to bring hope to Liberians at this grave moment in their country's history. We have to start thinking now on how to reactivate 
the self-sustenance of people, their livelihood, their occupation, their access to jobs, to microcredits. So this is something that has to start now to be prepared when the moment comes. The disease continues to cross borders and reach new continents. To date, more than 10,000 people have been infected and more than half confirmed as fatalities. To control the virus, scientists and the medical community are working closely with the World Health Organization, WHO, and governments to develop new experimental vaccines and serums to fight Ebola. In October 2014, one vaccine, VSV-EBOV, engineered by a group of Canadian scientists, was shipped to Geneva for testing. If the results from the clinical trials are positive, this vaccine could be available in a few months. Back in Liberia, doctors and nurses worked swiftly to save Julius. After several weeks, he was tested again for the virus. Fortunately for me, I came through. One more, I had the opportunity to rejoin my family after the long period of isolation. Julius has beaten the disease but he feels the stigma associated with Ebola every day. Until a cure is found and rapid action is taken, the suffering is set to continue. And that report by Grace Barrett of the United Nations Radio. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Onelen Sinti. Botswana News Editors Forum says the country's democracy will be at stake should President Ian Kama lose an appeal to change the rules of parliament. Rebels in South Sudan accused government of violating the peace agreement just less than 24 hours after the warring factions agreed to stop the fighting in the country. And South Africa's minister in the presidency, Jeff Khadebe, is under pressure to use all means at his disposal to ensure the return of all the remains of more than 80 people killed in the Nigerian church building collapse. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Every day, many South Africans are prescribed medication for mental illnesses such as depression, bipolar, anxiety and others. However, according to the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAG, a lot of patients are not informed about what to expect from their medication. In an effort to create awareness around mental health problems, the NGO is hosting what is dubbed Facebook Fridays every week, where psychiatrists go live on the organization's Facebook Facebook page to answer all medication-related queries. For more on this initiative, Elizabeth Lidija spoke to Meryl Da Costa, spokesperson for SADEG. Well, we started Facebook Friday roughly around two and a half years ago because we felt a need for people to access information at the convenience of their fingertips and also at a reduced rate. And as you know, Facebook is free. So we decided that this will be a perfect opportunity to have experts such as psychiatrists and psychologists answer mental health-related questions to the public in general for a fraction of the price that they would normally pay if they were to go see a psychiatrist or psychologist at a consultation. Tell us about some of the issues your experts normally deal with when people take part in this initiative. We cover every mental health topic throughout the year and they do range from stress and burnout at the end of the year that often many of us do feel. We also cover medication. We cover anxiety and bipolar and depression, suicide. What are the warning signs of someone who may be feeling depressed or suicidal? 
how do I carry on after losing someone from suicide? So the chats are very interactive, very informative and very relevant to mental health. Do we know the scope of mental health illnesses in South Africa today? How many people are affected? Well, we do know that one in three people in South Africa may suffer from a mental illness in their lifetime. So it is highly prevalent. We at least know someone in our family or in our close circle who is suffering from a mental illness. And again, that does cover stress and burnout, anxiety, depression, and even schizophrenia and bipolar. So it really is prevalent. And however, we still don't want to talk about it. So by having chats like this and conversations like we're having right now, we're encouraging people to talk about mental health, speak up about it, and seek help. And why do you think mental illnesses are often stigmatized? We're really not sure. <laughs> We're really trying to help destigmatize mental health because mental health and depression is like any other disease, such as cancer or diabetes. I think, you know, when it comes to the brain being not well, people often feel that it's your fault. You had total control over it. You know, you had control over being depressed or sick. Or if you are feeling anxious or depressed, all of a sudden you're not in control of your brain so there is a stigma with regards to you know mental health and unfortunately we're trying really hard to try and destigmatize mental health and again the only way we can do that is by openly talking about it let's educate our listeners a bit what are some of the typical signs of a mental illness well, let's take depression, for example. Depression is very, very easy to identify in yourself or a loved one. So it is someone who's feeling overwhelmingly sad for more than two weeks. So it's not just someone who's having a blue Monday or a bad day. It's someone who's feeling very, very sad, very emotional. They may be crying a lot. They may be spending a lot of time by themselves or alone. Their eating habits may have changed. They may be comfort eating or not eating at all. They may be oversleeping or not being able to sleep at all. They also may be you know, giving away their prized possessions or just totally isolating themselves. So these are very easy warning signs that someone can identify in somebody else that they love or care about or even in themselves. And if they notice these signs, they should really speak out to someone like a professional or even a family member and get help. Apart from this Facebook Friday initiative, how else do you address issues around mental health? Well, we do have a call center. We have a 15 toll-free helpline based in Johannesburg, but we do receive calls from throughout the country in all nine provinces, and you can get in touch with us by just dialing 0800-567-567, and you can speak to a trained counselor. We also do have a very interactive and informative website, which is www.sadag.org. And again, on our Facebook page, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, we constantly update it every single day with chats with online videos articles brochures so there's so much information out there and again just keep updated you can also log and put your details to receive our newsletter which again goes out every single month with informative information so there are many ways that you can get in touch with SADAC and be in touch with most relevant mental health information there is out today And that was Meryl Da Costa, spokesperson for the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Nuclear science is increasingly being used to ensure food safety and detect unsafe food. It can even help to reduce what's been called food fraud and enable trade. Nuclear-related methods allow experts to measure pesticide or other chemicals in food products to make sure they meet international standards. The International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, is hosting the International Symposium on Food Safety and Quality this week to discuss these issues and more. UN Radio's Steve Thatchett has been speaking to James Jacob Sasania, who is a food safety specialist at the IAEA. The symposium is bringing together food safety stakeholders from around the world to come and discuss pertinent issues on public health and international trade, how food safety and quality can enhance public health and improve on international trade. Coming back on your previous statement, how can food safety and security help in international trade? Everything is globalized, and one of the things that is globalized is trade in food. And um, the other thing is that some a certain food product 
or a composition of a food may have various components that come from different parts of the world. So it's very important that um, to protect the consumers that the food is safe, that it doesn't contain um, either chemicals or microbiological hazards that might harm the consumer. I'm curious to know, like, uh, if there are high food safety standards and some countries cannot meet them, so do those countries suffer due to these high standards? Obviously, um, for example, in the international market, those standards have to be met in order for your product to be competitive. So if your product is not that competitive, then you're not going to access that market. So one of the things we do at the agency here, the IAA, is we capacitate, we, we give the capabilities to the member states so that they are able to meet those standards. But the other thing, the other system, going back to the question you asked, is the system of traceability to rule out food fraud. The other systems that we have, we, we help member states with, and this is a nuclear technique, is in the area of food irradiation. Food irradiation has some energy in there that can kill microbes, disease-causing pathogens. Uh, so the food is safer, the consumer is safe, but also the food lasts longer. So food irradiation in post-harvest use, especially or industrial use, if you wish, is very, very useful. So we're helping a number of our member states to strengthen those capabilities. And these are some of the things we'll be discussing at the symposium as well. But uh, is it widely used? It's a growing technology in terms of usage. Uh, mainly, it, it many use it, for example, in, in, in for industrial purposes. Just like I told you, if you produce bulk products and you're exporting them, it's highly applicable. But also, it is very useful in, in areas where um, you want to produce foods for those people who have a low immunity, uh, people in hospitals where they have diseases, maybe cancer, if you wish, and therefore their immunities are low. So you want to give them a food that um, is safer, is regarded safer. But uh, it, it's a technology that we continue to encourage people to use, and that's what one of our roles here, to, to promote peaceful uses of nuclear technology. And that was James Jacob Sasania, food safety specialist at the IAEA, speaking there to UN Radio Steve Thatchett. It's 8.40 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, a report by UK-based environment investigation agency IAEA, so EIA says ivory prices in the black market have soared in the wake of Chinese sprees. The agency says tens of thousands of elephants are estimated to be slaughtered in Africa each year to feed rising Asian demands for ivory products, mostly from China, the African continent's biggest trading partner. For more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Mary Rice, Executive Director of Environment Investigation Agency. I think the issue that's highlighted in the report, it talks about visiting Chinese people who are associated with the presidential entourage at the time, basically went out to buy up as much ivory as they could. I mean, this is what the traders told us. So essentially the traders said that they came in the weeks leading up to the visit and during the visit and that they basically cleaned out the market of any available ivory, which is all illegal anyway, before they left. And they basically said that because the demand was so high, that the prices went up. The selling of ivory is legal in uh, Tanzania, irrespective of the ban by the CITES. It's completely illegal. There is no domestic ivory trade in Tanzania. There should be no ivory available on the market. So the Chinese delegation, they bought it on the black market in Tanzania? Yes, I think all of the people who, I mean, over the, for a very long period of time, and it has been well documented, is that you know, people who visit Tanzania, whether they be Chinese or Asian or other nationalities, who buy ivory in Tanzania are buying it from the black market. The authorities in Tanzania, are they aware of this black market trade in ivory? Certainly, they have made increased efforts. Obviously, you're aware that this issue is quite high profile at the moment. 
and the, the Tanzanian authorities have made greater efforts, particularly on the ground in terms of anti-poaching and enforcement at you know, ground level. And there have been increased efforts in the market, the local market, to try and tackle the problem of the illegal ivory trade, and there have been some good results. But the bigger problem, as far as we're concerned, is that that's a sort of a domestic level, but you have organized criminal syndicates operating within Tanzania, and they are smuggling ivory out in very large quantities, and I think that's where the focus and the effort needs to be applied. There needs to be more resources put into greater interagency support and more intelligence-led enforcement. Does it mean that if that is the situation, some people up there in the intelligence sources are colluding with these smugglers? Well, there have been allegations made that some high-level individuals have been involved or are implicated or collude. Certainly, the scale of the trade is such that it cannot continue unless it is protected by people in positions of authority or in positions of, I suppose, power. The Chinese delegation, how frequently do they go to Tanzania to get this illegal ivory in the market? Okay, I think it's wrong to focus on the delegation because it's a one-off incident that occurred and it illustrates the use of the diplomatic bag in the trade of ivory. The bigger problem is the issue of syndicates operating on a regular basis in-country and transporting goods out on a regular basis. They're, they're two completely different things, and I think it's wrong to focus only on that. And now the elephant population in the country, looking at Tanzania in particular, is it decreasing or is it increasing with regards to this illegal ivory trade? The population in Tanzania has dropped significantly. I think they've probably lost about two-thirds of their elephant populations over the last, since about 2006, I would say. And then they lost a significant number of elephants in the period 2009 to 2013. Those figures are all documented in the report. That was Mary Rice, Executive Director of Environment Investigation Agency, on the line from London, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Thanks to Balungile, Zimbabwe is to reserve 2 million carrots or 10% of its rough diamonds output for local cutting and polishing to stimulate local value addition. Zimbabwe is the sixth largest producer of rough diamonds and most of its gems are exported in rough form to Europe and Asia for processing, costing the countries the jobs of millions of dollars in revenue. Zimbabwe's Minister of Mines, Walter Chitako, explains. This is a momentous day for us because it shows that what we have done in Antwerp successfully, what we did in Dubai successfully, we can also do in Harare successfully. The United States is considering partnering with China on improving electricity in Africa. The proposal could be part of bilateral discussions when President Barack Obama visits Beijing next week. The proposal could include $5 to $7 billion of of commitments to improve electricity generation and transmission in several African countries. The 48 countries of sub-Saharan Africa, with a combined population of 800 million, produce roughly the same amount of power as Spain, a country of just 46 million. The shortage imposes a massive burden on economies in the continent, constraining growth and leading to hundreds of millions of people remaining mired in poverty. 
A war of words between leaders of South Africa's trade union NUMSA and the Trade Federation Kosatu looks set to continue. Kosatu's General Secretary Zolenze Mavavi has taken to Twitter to explain that he will allow everybody to have their say before reacting. NUMSA was expelled from Kosatu at a special Central Executive Committee sitting on Friday. Mavavi says NUMSA's expulsion will have profound political implications. He was suspended from Kosatu last year after admitting he had an affair with a junior colleague. Numsa challenged the suspension in court and it was overturned. Numsa's General Secretary Irvin Jim has told the media in Johannesburg yesterday that the union's expulsion was based on satisfying self-interests. Kosatu's decision to expel Numsa must be understood for what it is, a well-coordinated reactionary attack on the organization of workers, an attack on Kosatu, an attack on the poor, and an attack on workers. These reactionary forces that they have been plotting within the alliance to destroy the unity of Kosatu are doing this for their own selfish material interests. This Kosatu boardroom struggle is not about workers' interests. The African Development Bank has approved a $37 million crisis response budget support loan to Madagascar to for the financing of its emergency economic recovery program. The loan falls under pillar one window of the transition support facility to which the country became eligible following its classification as a fragile state by the AFDB and the World Bank last year and this year. The loan aims to address the urgent and priority needs of the Malagasy people who have been marginalized by the protracted political crisis that paralyzed the country for five years. Financial indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance is the gateway to the international community. The US dollar trades at 11.25 South African Rand, 915 Botswana Pula, 68 Zambian Gwaja, 062 to the British Pound, 080 to the Euro. Gold one one seven one dollars, platinum one two oh nine dollars an ounce, brand crude eight three dollars seven three cents a barrel. It's Monday. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Tammy Kuza. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. Host Morocco on Saturday demanded that the Africa Cup of Nations be postponed for a year because of the widening Ebola epidemic. But a government statement did not answer a Confederation of African Football ultimatum calling on Morocco to publicly state whether it would host the tournament from January the 17th until February the 8th. Morocco had already called on CAF to push back the tournament to June next year or 2016, but the African football bosses had refused to change the dates. The continental ruling body CAF had given Morocco until Saturday to give a firm response on whether it would stage the event. The new response from Rabat in Morocco means it is now up to CAF, which is to meet on Tuesday at its Cairo headquarters to move the event or cancel it. In rugby, South African Springbok coach China Kamea has acknowledged that Ireland were better than them, especially tactically, in their 29-15 defeat at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin on Saturday. It was the Springboks' first loss in the Northern Hemisphere since Mayer took over the reins of the national team in 2012, and the first defeat to Northern Hemisphere as well as in, as in Mayer's tenure as a Springbok coach. Mayer gave the credit to Ireland for playing good rugby and making use of their chances. Now, in cricket, South African Proteus captain J.P. Dumini has withdrawn from South Africa's squad for the limited overs international series against Australia due to a chronic knee injury and will take a six-week break from rest and rehabilitation ahead of the World Cup. Australia won the series 2-1 after losing the opening game in Adelaide by seven wickets before winning the remaining two. To get more, Natalie Chemanus reports. 
The final T20 of the series that was the decider as well went down to the wire, with Australia coming out on top, winning by two wickets and with just one ball to spare. They were set a target of 146 after South Africa batted first and made 145 for six in their 20 overs. They had a brilliant start, making 84 for one in the first 10, but couldn't capitalise on the start and eventually made 145. Quinton de Kock made 48 from 27 with five fours and two sixes. Reza Hendricks contributed 49 from 48, while David Miller made an undefeated 34 from 26 with three fours to his name. James Faulkner took three for 28 in his four overs for Australia, but it was Cameron White who was man of the match. He made an undefeated 41 from 31 with four fours and one six. And despite some good efforts from the South African bowlers to take things right down to the end, it was still Australia that came out on top. From South Africa's point of view, David Visser picked up three for 21 in four overs and Robin Peterson took three for 28. The man of the series went to James Faulkner. And in tennis, Germany's Angie Kerber came so close to keeping Germany alive in the final of the Fed Cup by BNP Paribas against the Czech Republic. She led 4-1 in the final set against Petra Kvitova, but the Czech player came back to win 7-6, 4-6, 6-4, and that gave the Czechs the third point they needed to win the Fed Cup. And Kerber says that she's sad with the results. Yeah, I mean, for sure, I'm a little bit sad, but, you know, I think it was an unbelievable match uh, against Petra. I mean, we had up and downs, and he was fighting until the last point, and the crowd was unbelievable, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, now it's over, and we are down 0-3, but, um, you know, it's still an experience to be in the final and to play two matches, and, you know, I think the, the Czech girls, they deserve to win it. And finally in golf, Baba Watson has won the HSBC Champions in Shanghai for his first World Golf Championship title. The Twice Masters winner hold a birdie putt to win a playoff over South Africa's Tim Gluck in a dramatic finale at Shenzhen. Nick Tai reports. Watson is famed for exuberance, for style, for drama. He looked out of it after a double bogey on the 17th and was trapped in a greenside bunker at 18. He says he lost his voice. Such was his reaction to chipping in for Eagle. Clark was playing alongside and hold his birdie putt as both finished 11 under par. Graham McDowell had led on each of the first three days. He approached the last alongside Hiroshi Iwata and Martin Keimer. None of the three could make a birdie, so it was back down 18 for Watson and Clark and Watson hold from 20 foot plus for the birdie, which gives him a hugely satisfying first victory outside of the United States and he's likely to be up to third in the world rankings. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. The year 2014 represents a historic milestone of 20 years of freedom and democracy in our country. An occasion to reflect on what has been achieved by South Africans working together. We have representative legislatures, an independent judiciary, independent public audit, an independent reserve bank, and independent constitutional bodies to provide checks and balances and protect the rights of citizens. Thanks to our progressive constitution, South Africa is a successful story. South Africa is a good story. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, South Sudan rebels accuse government of violating ceasefire and UN investigators denied entry into Sudan's Darfur region. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news, 
on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is QB Smith and Brian Timber with a song titled Man of Summer. Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. Look at your headlines this morning. Botswana's political term oil deepens. A United Nations team of investigators is prevented by Sudan's government in Khartoum from entering northern Darfur. And President Barack Obama justifies the deployment of an additional 1,000